Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, said Viktor Frankl, the last of human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Well, I just have to do it my way. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Season 5 Interlude, an 80s conversation with Rav Yehuda HaKohen. I am sitting here with my good friend and fellow educator, Rav Yehuda HaKohen of the Vision Movement, and I'm really excited to tap your brain and your perspective on the 80s. I know you're a listener, as well as a fan, as well as having your own amazing projects, which we'll get to by and by, um, and I want your insight on how we can start to wrap up the 80s, something that the linear part of the Jewish story has been engaged in, I don't know, maybe three or four episodes at this point, because I have a feeling that there's much of the world in which we live today as Jews and as Israelis that was actually kind of created or at least came to be in that time. That's interesting. I definitely see the 80s as a decade where a lot changed here in Israel, for sure. For instance? Well, for a lot of... Uh, neoliberal reforms. For folks who aren't familiar with the technical language, what do you mean by neoliberal reform? A lot of economic changes within Israeli, uh, within Israeli, a lot of changes within the Israeli economy. I would also say that, you know, you had a, roughly a decade, I mean, with a couple spots of Perez, you know, roughly a decade of Likud rule. And then you also, following the 80s, you had uh, suddenly the Oslo process and a rapid change here, meaning I, as a child in the 80s, whenever I saw a map of the state of Israel, there was no lines in the middle. There was, you know, it was just the state of Israel with the Golan Heights, with Gaza, with Judea and Samaria. The kid bean that people have become quite familiar with that's on the maps today was simply not there. Right, and, and it, it was just very clear that this is all Israel, and that changed in the 90s. It did. And I want to stay focused on America, although it's inevitable that the story really exists on both sides of the pond, as they say. So let's think about what was driving some of those changes in America in, in the 80s. You know, you grew up like myself in the 80s, although, as you pointed out earlier, I am a little bit older. Nonetheless, the American Jewish identity in the 80s underwent some major shifts. What would you say was the foundation of your Jewish identity growing up? Well... I might be unique because my parents were immigrants. Like, I was the first person in my family to be born in the United States. The immigrants from? Um, different countries. We've been wandering around for 2,000 years. Jews. And I actually grew up, um, even though, like, as a child, I went to a Jewish day school until fourth grade. They, I think they kicked me out. I'll be kind and not ask why. Fair enough. But after leaving there, I think, you know, most of my social life was, you know, primarily with non-Jews um, and also a lot of other immigrant kids, but also, you know, some Jews. But again, it wasn't like a Jewish space. And the Jews who were in that world were often very closeted about being Jews because it was kind of a rough crowd and, and being Jewish for whatever reason. Maybe it's part of the curse of exile we learn about in Parshat B'chukotai, but Jews were considered easy prey in the world I grew up in. Yes, and when we come to speaking about Rav Kahana, we'll come back to that topic. Yeah, that's extremely relevant. I would say that just like a woman has to work harder to earn the same pay or get the same respect in the workplace, for a Jew to get the same respect in the world I grew up in, he has to be more violent than a black kid or an Irish kid. So it sounds to me then that if you're going to identify one foundation of your Jewish identity at this point in the 80s, 
it would have been the need to fight. Often. In order to have respect because your other option was to hide. Something to that effect. I'm not sure if I thought about it as a child. Like, I still remember the first time I was, like, experienced, like, anti-Semitic bullying. I didn't even know it was anti-Semitic. Like, I didn't even know what this whole, like... You just thought it was personal. Yeah, like, why are you talking about quarters and, like, you know, like, like, what do you mean throw a quarter in a taxi and all that? Like, all all these things. I I was with a black friend. We were playing in in a playground, and these guys were a little bit older than us, and they, at first, like, wanted to play with us, and we just kind of were doing our own thing, and then they came over afterwards and got more aggressive and started making all these comments about my family. I didn't know them. They didn't know my family. I must have been, like, 10 or 11 years old at the time. And I remember that being like, I, I didn't even, I'm not even sure I understood till years later that that was a Jewish thing directly, but it, but, but it culminated in them actually getting physically violent. So this is a very different experience than I had growing up. I mean, I was in a much more Jewish environment. I, I was in many ways the prototypical American Jewish experience in the 80s. Suburban, public school, but lots of Jews. Nobody really kind of, sort of, let's say, front-loaded their Jewish identity in public school, but nobody felt the need to hide it. It wasn't a source of shame or, or bullying, except in a very small elite <laughs> you know, group. But where the challenge set in is in another element that uh, spoken quite a bit about in the show, which is in this challenge of assimilation. You know, the success that the Jews experienced economically and socially in the 80s Many people today want to call it the kiss of death. And I was in youth groups where we were asking, are you Jewish or American or are you American Jew? Like, where do you stand? Which at the time I took for granted. Now I can understand a little bit more that there was a note of desperation in the voices of the institutional powers that were behind that because they had a sense that they were losing their kids. So um, it's interesting, uh, social acceptance versus that sense of challenge. Just to to speak to what you're saying, I think that the process of Jews attaining whiteness that really began, let's say, post-World War II in the United States with uh, urban sprawl and the GI Bill um, ultimately kind of, I, I think it kind of plateaued in the 80s. I think the 80s is when uh, Jews were kind of growing up, at least maybe where you grew up, like feeling less ethnic. Like I, I very much grew up as like an ethnic Jew in the 80s and 90s in New York City, like in relation to my Albanian or Irish or Puerto Rican friends. You grew up in an ethnic society. Yeah, where everybody was defined by their tribe. Yeah, yeah. The suburban environment was all about homogenizing. Uh-huh, right. So that, that was, that's obviously very different. Except for the black-white divide. That sure. you couldn't get around. Sure, sure. I remember the, the Jewish world you're talking about was the kind of thing I remember kind of experiencing in college mm-hmm. and being surprised by because I actually requested to be that there were like apparently there were like unofficially segregated freshman dorms and, where'd you go to school uh, syracuse uh-huh. and there were like these dorms that were known as like the jewish dorms uh-huh. and i'm your listeners don't see my quotes my air quotes uh but I, I remember requesting you know to be in the jewish dorms thinking i'd make some jewish friends but assuming there were jewish kids like me with my experiences growing up in the t- and they were all from like long island new jersey maybe some from Cleveland. And I was just, it was culture shock for me. It was like, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with the term Jap. I'm not even sure if that's an offensive term or not. It is, but we're, it's okay. We're, we're here to, to offend. It stands for Jewish American princess for those who are unfamiliar. But there were quite a few princes too. Oh, yes. No, it can be prince. And I was just like really, I mean, I had encountered kids like this where I'd grown up, but I, I don't want this to come, I, I don't know how to say this the right way, 
where I grew up, those kids knew that they were beneath me on the food chain. You know, like, but suddenly I'm in their world and I'm like, I felt like this kind of like gorilla who's like now like walking amongst these like... You know, there's a very important lesson there and that power is a lot about the control of context. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the things that give us power in one context can actually take it away to another. Right, right. And and that was really difficult for me because as like, a, I think almost 19 year old, I had been successful at attaining some level of power in the context I came from, which was a very high stakes kind of dangerous world. And now I'm suddenly in this world that just kind of reminded me of Saved by the Bell. So I want to go from the personal to the global for a second, because, you know, the 80s is a time in which many things were shifting. Um, and as we were speaking about a little bit before we uh, hit record, it was in many ways the end of the Cold War, but in the sense of a sunset effect. What do I mean? The Cold War didn't go out with a whimper. It almost went out with a bang. When I was growing up in the 80s, I remember um, in 1984 being scared and listening to, to Ronald Reagan speak about the evil empire. And when I was in sixth grade, our final project was a participatory art nuclear protest, hippie teachers that we had. Well, but, but it wasn't make-believe. It was a sense that such a thing could be. So what do you think the Cold War, what impact do you see it as having on the Jewish story? Not so much in Israel. We can come to that. But again, I want to focus on, on America. And as someone who I know um, is a broad political thinker, I'm curious what you see. Well, I, I want to share maybe something a little more personal because I had a lot of family in the Soviet Union at the time. So, you know, I still remember in the 90s, a lot of my relatives coming to New York, quite a few. Suddenly I had all these cousins around that I'd only met once as like a seven-year-old when I'd gone to Russia and Ukraine. That was 1997. Like I had gone to the Soviet Union in 87. I want to hear about that. It was hard to find food. You mean at all? You're not talking about kosher food? Yeah, at all. Like, uh, we brought those, like, little kind of Kellogg cereal boxes with us. But even to get uh, someone to give us a bowl to put them in was challenging. I remember my father bringing a carton of Marlboros with us. And every time he wanted to get into a restaurant, you know, we couldn't get into a restaurant until he slipped the doorman a pack of Marlboros. And that's what got us in. Which sounds like a very low threshold to me, but I imagine was quite valuable for them. This was Moscow. And then when we went to the Ukraine, to Zaporozhye, where my relatives were, I, we couldn't find toilets. That was my experience. To be fair, it was a very rural part of the Ukraine. But then anyway, they came to the United States. So um, I, I think from a geopolitical perspective, it, it was the end of history. That's what we were told, that, that this was the victory. Uh, we're now living in a unipolar, uh, U.S.-dominated world, uh, the era of neoliberalism. You had a uh, Democrat like Bill Clinton uh, in office for eight years, but really bringing the Democratic Party to the center of American politics in many ways. Well, yeah, that was at the end of the 80s, 92, which was still the 80s in most places. Okay. So, uh, but, but I mean that that was this, this idea of the end of history, um, that America had won and that this is pretty much the, the best humanity's ever done and the best humanity's ever going to do. And this like, U.S.-led global order, capitalism, neoliberalism, that's just like it forever and get used to it. You know what I see happening amongst American Jews in response to that is a doubling down both on a distancing from Israel and an allegiance to America. The sense that they bet on the right horse, right? Not yet the type of um, sharp break that we're sensing amongst a good chunk of American Jewry toward Israel, 
But a passive agnostic. Like, yeah, a soft sense of, listen, Israel is the sort of poor cousin that we'll continue to support. It's also religious Disneyland, nice to visit, wouldn't want to live there. I actually got in trouble, not in trouble, but I got a lot of pushback. In a, I took a sociology of Jewish communities course my freshman year of college. Uh-huh. And uh, there was going to be, they, they brought a guest lecturer to talk about Israel. And I now I know where that was probably headed. But I unintentionally derailed it uh, when they... Uh, Certainly not the first time you did something like that. Or certainly not the last. We're talking about a classroom full of like Jewish sorority girls. And when this lecture asked, well, when you think of Israel, what do you think? Uh, I said, it's an amusement park for American Jews. And they all flipped out and, and talked. And, and it was funny because they were just reinforcing my point. They were all like yelling about emotionally, about what a, a deep emotional experience they had on their teen tour. This might have been before Birthright or at the beginning of Birthright. So people going on teen tours. And I was just like, yeah, that's what I mean. But that, I think, derailed where that class was supposed to go. But yeah, that's, I think, how we perceived it. Like, it's an amusement park for American Jews, a, uh, a security, like, a security deposit. Plan B. Right. It was like, okay, if this doesn't work out, we go there. But that's exactly my point, because I feel like it's in the end of the Cold War that American Jews felt like, we don't even need that security. In fact... Truth is, over there, it's starting to look even more grim than it is here. So I guess my experience was unique because, uh, first of all, my father never had American citizenship. Like, he, he never even tried. And, uh, and he would always, like, reinforce this point in my head that we're not home. This isn't where we belong. Like, our country is over there. Again, like, I was a very rebellious kid. I wasn't really buying into all the Jewish stuff that he was into. He, he kind of got into... You know, he became like uh, started his trooper process, I guess, uh, around when I was three years old. By the time I was 11, I was just like not hearing any of it. But I think a, a lot of it stuck. Well, look where you are now. Yeah, Baruch Hashem. No, I, I think I think a lot of my emunah really comes from from things my father taught me. Just like raw emunah. I don't mean like you know learning like the maral inside. Right. Not not the intellectual faith, but the bedrock way in which you walk in the world. Right. My father, I think, definitely instilled a lot of emunah in me growing up. But part of that was like, this isn't our home. Like, don't kid yourself. You know, and I would say that uh, the definition of exile is exactly that. If you know that where you are is not where you belong, and I would argue that in the eighties both because of the victory in the Cold War and, and how much American Jewry identified with the American side of their identity, therefore they were on the winning side, and because of the way which post-Lebanon Israel's image was sullied, if not tainted. Just you wait till we get to the story of the Intifada, because nobody goes to Disney World when they're shooting people at the gates, right? right? So be- because of that, I think that there was really a shift toward this sense that we're no longer in exile. Right? There's that soft word of diaspora, Right, we're a dispersed people. But today, when I speak to my students, say, uh, my students at Pardes who come from America to learn here, or when I'm interacting with American Jews, a lot of them are perfectly at home, so perfectly that it doesn't even occur to him, to them, that they might belong somewhere else. I want to want to touch on Soviet Jewry in that in that light because, you know, the struggle for Soviet Jewry, for me, was a, was a defining moment in, in in my childhood. The sort of cl- the the famous. Um, Freedom Sunday in 1987. I have very strong memories of getting on a bus in Cleveland and driving through the night to D.C. and seeing hundreds of thousands of Jews rallying on the mall. And yet I now know from my research that one of the great challenges that was posed by the victory is that more Soviet Jews wanted to come to America than really wanted to go to Israel. Right. And, and, And American Jews were happy to have them. 
America itself wasn't necessarily happy to have them as a country. It's a more complicated discussion. But my point is, it's another indication that American Jews were sensing that they were their own entity. In relation still to Israel, but uh, perhaps with a different agenda. The, the more enlightened. A student of mine is roommates with a rabbinical student at Hebrew Union College. And uh, she said to me that this person like openly speaks about like the duty of Americans to American Jews, the duty of like Jews in the United States to force Israelis to get with the program and to become more enlightened. And, and of course, to westernize Israeli society and et cetera. And, and it, it's not even like there's no shame in it. They're just like, yeah, that's of course, like that's the duty of American Jews. Like we, we have to use whatever influence we have. You know what the beauty of colonizers is? They're not ashamed. They think they're doing the right thing. Right. The, the problem is so many of us are, are colonized colonizers. That's the, that's the really difficult. Playing out a multi-generational game. Right. And not even realizing, not even seeing our own colonization that drives us to behave as colonizers to ourselves or to others yeah you know? so again i'm doing the pivots here because i got a lot of uh, a lot of points on the board i'm curious about so i got a, an email from a listener recently by the way you can reach me rob mike foyer gmail.com you can go to jewishstory.co or rob mike.com to get in touch with me that way by the way also those sites were built by vision traction you know there's an amazing guy out there his name is Aton. he can help you create a digital profile that will really make you successful but I digress. Just a favor to a friend. I, I got an email from a listener who listened to my most two recent podcasts on the Jonathan Pollard story and the story on Rav Kahana. Two people I know who, who, to whom you have a strong attachment in various ways. Not personally, just, you know, to their story. So I want to read you what he says here and, uh, and see what you think. See, first of all, Jonathan Pollard is a traitor. Full stop. Pollard sold our most closely guarded secrets to Israel for money and belatedly used Israeli security as a shield for his reprehensible actions. There's no even-handed treatment of such a reprehensible, dishonest, and traitorous grifter. Right? He says he was so incensed, by the way, of my whitewashing, as he calls it, Pollard, that he stopped listening mid-show and almost stopped becoming a supporter. Which, by the way, you can go. That's at jewishstory.co, upper right-hand corner. There's a button there. Join the team for season six. He goes on, though. After Pollard, but he, he didn't give up. Don't give up on me, people. Today, I listened to your story about Mayor Kahana. I was prepared for a denunciation of him, but to my surprise, you were even-handed in your Kahana portrayal. Did not damn nor praise him, but presented what I think is a fair assessment. Kahana, this is the key line. Kahana was a complex man whose motivations were simple. The protection of the Jewish people and the state of Israel above all else. Pollard was just a traitor, pure and simple. Now, I was shocked, not by the vehemence. I, as far as I'm concerned, if I can get a reaction out of someone, it's a, it's a big win. And, and, and I really appreciate when people share their thoughts with me, even if they are critical, especially if they're critical. What I was shocked by was I would have assumed that someone who saw Pollard as a traitor full stop would have seen, you know, uh, Mayor Kahana as a racist demagogue, perhaps. You know, when I, when I sort of prepped you with this, you had an interesting observation. What, what does this say to you? First of all, tell, tell me a little bit about your Jewish story and, and what role the stories of Pollard and Rav Kahana might play there? I would say even though my politics might be different, especially on Palestinian issues, uh, I definitely have a lot of akaratatov uh, to Rav Merkahana because... Gratitude, recognition for the good that he's done for you. Yeah, for me, 
personally because uh, my way back to Am Yisrael was really through the JDL. Like I, as, as somebody who grew up the way I did and had the experiences I did, I discovered the internet in my second year of college and I discovered the Jewish Defense League through the internet and I joined them. And uh, for me, it was like joining a Jewish gang. At least that's what I was expecting. All the politics and ideology kind of came later, but it was really like, it, it really changed my world. I thought it was going to be like an interesting chapter in, in my autobiography one day, and I'd just like move on and do something else. That like totally changed the trajectory of my life. And then when the second intifada started, I dropped out of school to come here and join the army. And I've been kind of living the Jewish story ever since. And you didn't trademark that, did you? The Jewish story? Yeah. I mean, sure, yeah. <laughs> sure. Okay. So I can say it here. You can say it here. I get royalties wherever else you say it. So, Blinader. So for me, like, and when I started learning Torah as a 20-year-old up in Syracuse, New York, I had an art school chumash and dozens of cassette tapes of Rav Kahana speaking. Uh, on the Parsha, on political issues, whatever, that's what I had. And, and some of his books, I really devoured the stuff. And that was like a Torah that made sense to me. I think that was the only Torah that, taking into consideration where I was coming from, that was a Torah that was accessible to me, that was interesting to me, that was exciting to me. And it really, like, it, it, like I, you know, I, I thought I was joining, like, the Black Panthers, but like a Jewish Black yeah. Panther party. What role would you say that a sense of Jewish pride played in that? Oh, I was, uh, like, it, it really, again, I'm, I'm telling you that I grew up in a, uh, an environment where being a Jew was not... I didn't think this way internally because of, you know, just the way my father taught me. And he, and he also used to have, like, Etzel veterans over for Shabbat dinners and things like that. Like, meaning he very much, like, pushed, like, a more... Um, tough Jew stance. It, and, you know, and, and a lot of the men in my family are tough guys. So I never thought of myself. And even, like, going to, like, day school as a kid, like, you know, I would learn about the Maccabeam and Avraham fighting the four kings. Like, I never thought that we're supposed to be weak. Um, but the perception of Jews in the world I existed in as a teenager was, like, you know, the easy targets, etc., I'm discovering as an adult that a lot of kids I grew up with were Jews, but we're so closeted about it. I, I remember one time like outing a friend of mine for being a Jew uh, and him wanting to fight me uh, because like I, I found out, uh, you know, I like some girl in my math class told me she went to Hebrew school with him. And I was just like, what? And when I brought it up to him, he, he like wanted to fight. He was angry. He was like, re he felt like deeply threatened. So this is like a, a world where being a Jew is really a liability in terms of identity, in terms of like the way people perceive you, because it, it was definitely a world where, like, you know, if somebody, if, if somebody, like, writes their name over mine on a wall, we have to fight, right. you know? Like, there was no option not to do something about that, because then, th then suddenly, uh, you know, you're perceived as weak in a world where you don't want to be weak. When suddenly, like, the different image of what a Jew is, this, like, uh, nation of scholar warriors. First of all, the, the JDL workouts uh, back then were harder than anything I had to do in basic training in the army here. Like, meaning it was, it was like real. And it was, it was like something that really, 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 like I wanted to be a part of. It was exciting to me. It looked well-organized. I remember like doing push-ups and having uh, the guy in charge, like, like teaching us Torah as like um, we're doing push-ups. And of course, Torah from a certain perspective. Uh, and I remember also getting kavod for the first time for being a Kohen. Respect. Uh, yeah, get, be, be, meaning I remember, um, and this like meant a lot to me because, you know, growing up as a Kohen, I don't know, like, okay, like I can't marry this woman or I, 
you know, where I uh, can't go into a cemetery. Like there was like, okay, I'm a Kohen. What does that mean? But I remember like in JDL, it was like the first time during a workout once, you know, the, the guy asked, is anybody here a Kohen? And I said, I am. He's like, all right, you make the bracha for everybody on like water, you know? And, uh, you know, and I was like, wow, I'm a Kohen, you know? There's so, something there. Yeah. So, and I think there is something in that Torah that's deeply true. I mean, the way I would define if I, if I were to really uh, explain Kahanist Torah today, it's basically Haredi Torah with nationalism. And I think that says a lot about the trajectory of Israeli society today, by the way, because the Haredi population is really the fastest growing population between the river and the sea, and they're becoming much more nationalist. Yes, if people are unfamiliar, there's actually seems to be, according to the polls, a a growing threat, in quotes, of um, Ben Gvir's sort of modern Kahanist incarnation party pulling votes from the Haredi world. Stay tuned. It'll be an interesting dynamic. Sure. And and it's going to also push a lot of, I believe, I think it's going to push a lot of the Haredi politicians to take much more nationalist positions in order to stem the flow of young voters going that way. Listen, politics here is never boring. (laughs) Whatever else you want to say about it. So when I think of Kahanistim, I think of the tribe of Shimon. Like that's like the the spiritual expression of the tribe of Shimon and our national soul shines into the... The zealots. Well... I don't know. I, I consider myself a little bit of a zealot, and I'm not in that camp anymore. But I think that the tribe of Shimon is a maybe... It's a very simple, and I think your reader who sent you that email, he said, he said something about Rav Kahana's... He said he was a complex man whose motivations were simple. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty accurate. And I think he also is correct about like his primary objective being the security of the Jewish people. It's kind of never again... Uh, ideology that that really makes less sense to people as we move further away from the Holocaust. This is a big shift that I touched on, is that the 80s is also a part of that shift. There's a generational shift. People born in the 80s, their primary experience of Israel, if they're aware, or growing up in the 80s, was Lebanon, the first Intifada, right? All of which were ugly, televised, but none of them felt existential except for the people, of course, living in the country at the time, as opposed to their parents who witnessed 73 and 67, these things which were not only prettier on TV, but truly existential struggles. Yeah, I remember my father telling me that in 67, they really believed Israel might be wiped out. Oh, yes. Like, and, and listening to the radio. And- Re- you will, Repeatedly. Everyone I've ever spoke to who was alive at the time, it was a certainty. And not oddly so, since it was literally, you know, just 22 years after the liberation of Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. So and such a thing can be imagined. Right. And, and the fact that it, it ultimately was a biblical style miracle in the heart of the 20th century, I, I think that just like led to an explosion of Jewish identity, not only in the Soviet Union. Uh, I mean, I would explain it maybe in, in more mystical terms, I think, that uh, not just the miraculous nature of the war, uh, but also the... Uh, metaphysical impact of the Jewish return to sovereignty over Jerusalem. There's a lot in the Zohar Kadosh about this. And I think that had an effect on our collective soul that just woke something up among, in, in American Jews, in Soviet Jews, etc. Listen, it's warping the fabric of almost everything still. I don't know if people can hear in the background the traffic, but that's the Dead Sea Road below us. We're on my porch looking from the east toward uh, Irak Kodesh, the holy city, even as we speak. So, so I hear the role that Rav Kahana played. For you personally, and, and thank you for also fleshing out a little bit. I mean, I just want to also say that even now that, you know, when I came to Israel and discovered the Torah of Rav Kook, uh, it took some time for me to realize, because on the surface it could sometimes look similar, especially during the Second Intifada, because I came to Machon Meir, which is a Rav Kook institution, during the Second Intifada, like when, when I was preparing to join the army, 
and uh, and and the Torah, they're both. Uh, we could call them both nationalist, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Uh, you know, approaches Torah. There's a significant nationalist element in Rav Cook's Torah. I wouldn't call it nationalist Torah. Well, no, I think nationalism is. It's the wrong word, but it's the word we have in English. And and both are very much focused on the story of the Jewish people. And and so it took me a little while to see the differences. Profound that they are. And understand, but no, because during the Second Intifada, I mean, one of the things that happened here during the Second Intifada is a lot of the younger generation of the Rav Cook world adopted by default a lot of Kahanist positions on Palestinians. There was a narrowing and an intensification and a, and a militancy. Which makes sense when you're in war. Well, yeah. Right, that's, you know, we're talking about a, a population that experienced a lot of bloodshed, uh, especially the Jews living in Judea and Samaria in the West Bank. And uh, so it took me a while, you know, to before I really understood that I'm not really a Kahanist anymore. That that's something, and of course, you know, once I started working with Palestinians a few years later and and getting involved in uh, reconciliation work, that became more and more obvious. But I do think that there is something deeply true in in the Kahanist position that was necessary for me to grab onto at that time in order to make my way in. Excellent. And Jonathan Pollard? Well, I think Pollard is, is was uh, the secret to freeing American Jews. The secret to... Wait, pause on that. Pollard is the secret to freeing American Jews. All right, now tell me more. Now, now I'm, I, I'm not saying anything I didn't learn from one of my teachers, uh, Eli Yosef, who actually was one of the main organizers of uh, the like free Pollard movement here in Israel. I remember... Like, who I'm hoping to have on, actually, on the show soon. Ah, nice. So I remember when uh, we used to do hunger strikes together for Pollard, and he would go to all these Israeli high schools, like telling the story of Pollard and, and getting all these teenagers out and, and making Pollard an important issue in certain sectors of Israeli society. Uh, his argument, and I think he was right, is that Jonathan Pollard is the only free Jew in the United States. Everybody else is a prisoner uh, because he's the only one who had to confront the question uh, who am I? Am I an American or am I a Jew? I can't be both. Uh, I can't be both. He's the only one who made the decision, but is still stuck there physically, right? Um, and he's and if we force the other Jews of the United States to confront the story of Jonathan Pollard, then they too can become liberated. Uh, and in in Eli Yosef's pers- uh, point of from from Eli Yosef's point of view, um, Jonathan Pollard uh, corrected the sin of American Jews during the Holocaust. Uh, who essentially uh, wanted to be Americans and therefore, at least the Jewish establishment in the United States, kind of kept their constituencies in the dark, uh, didn't Chose make not noise. to make waves. Right. Uh, you've done shows on Peter Bergson, Hilo sure. Cook. Um, and so, so, so uh, you did a show on Stephen Wise, I remember, yep. I think last season, right? Uh, no, season two. Season two. No, I, but, but you brought him up again recently. Yeah, or maybe during your summer course. Could be. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a real fan. But I think that uh, Jonathan Pollard, I, I think this is true. I think this analysis, it, it makes sense that Pollard basically was confronted by a very similar dilemma as the American Jewish leadership in the 1940s. Uh, basically, he saw information that Israel was in danger. Uh, he saw that... Specifically the Iraqi chemical. Iraqi, Syrian, Libyan, yeah. Um, and, and he uh, saw that the U.S., intelligence community was withholding that information despite a memorandum of understanding that obligated the two nations to share such information. And uh, he had a choice to make. Am I an American or am I a Jew? And he couldn't be both. And he decided to 
betray the United States, that's true, but in doing so, he really freed himself, and he showed that he is part of Am Yisrael. So it's an idealistic presentation. What do you say to this listener's critique that basically he was dishonest, that he was a grifter, he was in it for money, he was selling secrets? Look, I, I think anybody who meets Pollard or who even hears him speak will know pretty quickly that that's not what we're dealing with. And now, perhaps. No, but, uh, but I think we're, we're also talking about a person... I, I agree that to a certain extent there was an ideology um, that was very easy for him to subscribe to once in prison and once making the choices he made. And, 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 and I think uh, his wife Esther, I think was, uh, v- who, who just recently passed away, I think was very influential in his tshuva and uh, bringing him close to Torah and, and giving him maybe a deeper and greater understanding, uh, also of Mordechai Leozetzal, of, of giving him like a greater understanding of, of what he did and why it's important. And obviously a person in that position wants to see what they did is important. But, but it's very hard for me to believe that uh, just in terms of his character, in terms of the type of person we're talking about, that this was just kind of like a self-interested grifter, traitor of secrets. I think this is somebody who, who was shocked himself that the U.S. was withholding this information. Obviously, he was able to subscribe greater meaning to what he did later in life uh, and understand it in a greater context. But uh, that doesn't mean that at the time he wasn't driven by idealistic motives. And I, and I think there's a, a definitely a huge uh, incentive for many people, especially in the American Jewish establishment who don't want to confront these issues, to like spread this misinformation in order to taint his reputation and paint him a certain way. Because that's honestly, that's like the immature approach. That like they don't want to deal with with the questions that he represents, right? I always say that uh, J Street is not the antithesis to APEC. Jonathan Pollard is the antithesis to APEC, because the whole the, this whole uh, narrative that um, the American Jewish establishment, including the pro-Israel American Jewish establishment, tells itself about its identity, its place in the United States, the relationship between the U.S. and Israel, it's all a G-rated movie. And I think rather than deal with the contradictions, rather than actually confront these contradictions in their own identities and the way they've chosen to look at the world and and the way they've chosen to make themselves comfortable with the choices they've made, they prefer to just tarnish the image of this guy who really sacrificed so much for the Jewish people. So in a sense, Jonathan Pollard and Rav Kahana intersect around Kahana's book, Uncomfortable Questions for Comfortable Jews, in the sense that Pollard poses the most uncomfortable question, which is that when you're faced with an opportunity to act, which will do damage to one in service of protecting the other, who are you? And I think you're correct that the 80s was the point at which American Jewry became convinced that that question was no longer relevant, that one could be as Jewish as they wanted to be and comfortably American. Um, Although, you know, just to pivot to one last topic before we wrap things up, the reality of that for the majority of American Jews was that they were extremely comfortable and not so desirous of being all that Jewish. I noted in one of my earlier shows that it was in 1983 that the reform movement formally recognized patrilineal descent. But I think even those who were interested in being openly Jewish, visibly Jewish, actively Jewish, 
also bought into the mythology of American exceptionalism. I mean, you see that even in the American Haredi community, even among the modern Orthodox, for sure, among the modern Orthodox, that it's not just those who distance themselves from Jewish practice and Jewish ritual and, and halakha. I think even among those who are fully observant of halakha, there became this American identity and real contradictions in their identity. This is exactly where I was going. What I was going to point out is that there, there's a... You know, assimilation mm-hmm. is a stick that um, religious Jews love to hit non-religious Jews with. Like, oh, look at all these assimilated Jews. And that's exactly what I was at. The setup of like, oh, the intermarriage rates. Oh, uh, you know, educational systems are clapping. Oh, oh, oh. But what you're pointing out is that a person can be, you know, faithful to the religious structures of Judaism and completely assimilated it into American society. Absolutely. So much so that um, they would look at Jonathan Pollard as the quintessential traitor. Not just because he betrayed the country, but because he tra- betrayed them by exposing the contradictions which reside at the base. You know, I can tell you my, my personal uh, Jewish journey. The first time I came to Israel was in the 80s. I was in high school. Let's do the math. I, it must have been 1989. I was 15. At the time I came here, uh, USY High as a high school during the year uh, three-month program. A number of experiences, including seeing Rav Kahana preaching at a street rally. Did you understand what you were witnessing at the time? I, not at all. Uh-huh. I knew who he was because you got informed. And, and I remember this very frightening feeling that the only thing I could associate him with was Hitler in the sense of like the angry power in the crowd. At the time, the slogan was What was he talking about? He was talking about the loan guarantees that the United States was dangling in front of Israel as, a, as an assistance to absorbing the hundreds of thousands of Soviet Jews that were being released at an incredibly rapid pace, right, in return for curtailing construction in um, Yudan Shamron, in the, in, in the so-called West Bank. It, it's a microcosm that deserves to be unpacked. But, well, that, so that's what was so interesting to me about this email that you got, because I think it expresses something that I've seen uh, that I think has become a growing phenomenon among right-wing Jews. What's that? And it's, especially right-wing Jews in the United States, this idea of Kahana's good, Pollard's bad. Because that, that is something that was less common a decade or two ago. I was astounded right. when I saw that. Well, well, I think that, you know, I used to say in Israel there are two kinds of Kahanistim. Or maybe in the world, there are two kinds of Kahanistim. There are those Jews who really see themselves as an oppressed group. I think you see this a lot amongst uh, Mizrahi Kahanistim. Um, and maybe uh, Soviet Jews, etc., uh, Jews who really think of themselves as like an oppressed group, and this guy was fighting for our rights. He was fighting for us. And then you have like Kahanistim who come from places like Texas and identify with the Republican Party and just see like Rav Kahana is just like the right-wing Jewish voice that puts us kind of on the same team, and they buy in, you know, they totally buy into American exceptionalism and capitalism. You're and, seeing their stance on abortion right now come out in the media, and right? Et and so those guys, so th- this obviously that that seems to be a growing voice now. But I find it very ironic because, as you just pointed out with the slogan, I think the last big issue that Rav Kahana was fighting for and what probably got him killed was separating from the United States. Well, it's actually what he was speaking to the crowd about on the day his assassination was, telling them basically time to choose. Where do you belong? Get out while you still can. Right, but not just about Aliyah, about Israel politically separating from the United States. And I think that's a message that none of his students or followers 
real, or I'm not going to say none, but the few of them, uh, certainly the ones in the United States or, or who kind of like buy into, you know, I, you know, like this narrative of, of uh, Israel being the Robin to America's Batman, you know, like I think that it, like the type of person who would be sympathetic. I, this email, by the way, wasn't necessarily Kahanist. No, he didn't know. He he made an important observation. Complex individual with a very simple motive. I, I think what was very interesting there was the radically different uh, levels of nuance in his approach to Pollard and Kana. I hit a nerve. Right. So so meaning Pollard <laughs> hits a nerve. Yeah. Uh, and and so like what you but what you see is there is this kind of like growing. I, I I think as the American Jews, including the Orthodox, including the right wing, um, you know, what we can call maybe sh in a very superficial, uh, uh, from a very superficial perspective, nationalist Jews. The conservatives, small c. Right. Like, like no, no, no. But I mean, nationalists, meaning yeah. like in their minds, kind of connected to the Jewish story, but it might not be as real to them as the American dream they're pursuing. I think that amongst that crowd uh, or, or those who are invested in the U.S.-Israel relationship, maybe professionally or emotionally or whatever, I think there is this like, you know, Pollard is really triggering and you did touch a nerve. And and uh, it's just interesting to me because it used to be like a given that anybody who is who is at all sympathetic to to Rav Kahana or Kahanism would have been pro Pollard. That was my assumption. Right. But, but it evolved in such a way that you have all these right wing American Jews who've bought into American exceptionalism, bought into the U.S. Israel relationship as this like unbreakable what like foundation what, of our security and national yeah. safety etc et and i think it makes a lot of jews you know feel safe in the united states they don't have to make a choice i'm talking about the pro-israel jews yes, i'm talking about teaneck i'm talking yeah. about the five towns it makes them feel safe and i think the trump administration was really um damaging to us in that sense that it, that it intensified the sense of security oh it did and really made them feel especially when you get a guy like david friedman uh you know as ambassador to israel suddenly People in the five towns, Jews in the five towns, are like, look, one of us. Like, we're, like, we're there. And he we're was. Right, he really was. And, and so, although that the whole administration was such an anomaly, such a crazy, like, fever dream. Don't count chickens before they're hatched. Right, sure. <laughs> so, listen, I, we're, we're hitting time here. I just want to wrap it up and say thank you. There's some important insights here. I hope folks are listening closely. And if folks want to ask you questions or know more about where they can see your thought, where would they do that? They'd go to either visionmovement.org or visionmag.org. That's our magazine where your podcast is, is featured uh, on an almost weekly basis. Is They can uh, hit contact and uh, say the emails for me and it'll get to me. They can also follow me on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. I'm Yuda HaKohen. But definitely I would say go to visionmag.org because there's a lot of interesting content there that I think listeners should check out. Excellent. Well, Rav Yehuda HaKohen, visionary of the vision movement and fellow child of the 80s. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and the time with me. Um, you can also reach me at ravmikefoyer at gmail.com. You can go to my website, that's thejewishstory.co or ravmike.com if you want to be in touch, you want to see all the great things I'm involved in. If you want to give a little bit of per-podcast support, there's a button in that upper right-hand corner of jewishstory.co. Check it out. I need your support for Season 6. I want to thank the Land of Israel Network. That's thelandofisrael.com. They're creating a center for global transcendence in the heart of the Judean mountains. I want to thank the Pardes Institute, P-A-R-D-E-S.org.il, for throwing the doors of the Beit Midrash open as wide as possible. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story.